Well, we're in the midst of Deuteronomy 5, taking a look at the Ten Commandments in depth. We looked at them in summary last week, and I want to ask you, how did you do this week? Did you repeat them to yourselves? Did you memorize them? Can you recall them? Did you spend time doing that? My earliest memory, personally, of the Ten Commandments comes as a result of a board game that I played with my sisters called, you guessed it, the Ten Commandments. It was produced in 1966 and passed down to us, and there it is. I found it on eBay. Yay! It was an awesome little game. You got to go around the Sinai Peninsula and do all the fun things. Now, my sisters both attended a Christian elementary school in their youth and had been involved with my parents at the church they attended. But by the time I hit uh, their life, uh, by the time I hit early grade school, really, um, some things had shifted, and my parents had had some conflict with the church they were in. And uh, all I really knew of the Bible was this board game because we didn't attend church. So I actually have very fond memories of it. But one of the funniest memories uh, is how my sisters taught me what each of the Ten Commandments meant. I was about six, seven years old, and I can still remember them explaining it. And this was what processed through my head. One God, got it, check. No worshiping idols, got it, check. No using the Lord's name in vain, I got it, I got spanked for that, check. Right? And on it went. Until we got to the topic of adultery. Lissa, Kari, I said, those are my sisters. What does adultery mean? One of them replies, go ask mom and dad. (laughs) Now that sounds like good advice, right? Right, doesn't it? I mean, that's what you want your older siblings to say. Well, here's the problem. Until I was about 15, I thought the word adultery meant go ask mom and dad a question. (laughs) Literally, go ask mom and dad a question. Maybe that's what made me so academic is I like to ask lots of questions because in so doing, I thought I was being morally correct right? Mom, dad, what's that mean? Mom, dad, what's that mean, right? Look at me. I'm not committing adultery, right? I was so confused. I didn't understand what it meant. Now, just a couple of weeks ago when we hung out with them, I told them this story, and they had never known that, and it took me about five minutes to get them to calm down from laughing. And there you have a microcosm of my upbringing. Well, thankfully, I learned the appropriate context and meaning of what adultery is and how to stay away from it, and I am all set now on what that word actually means at 39 years old, so that's good. Now, you guys might chuckle at my youthful ignorance, but what I find in the midst of Christendom is that many of us uh, have similar views of the Ten Commandments that may not be as far afield as mistaking what adultery is, but it, we get a little bit confused on what some of these things mean. Right? The most obvious one is don't take the Lord's name in vain. Okay, got it. I'm not supposed to curse. Well, that's actually not what that means. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Got it. I'm not supposed to lie. Well, that's actually not what that means. And so one of the things I hope to do today is I want to look at the summary of the law of God, the Ten Commandments, and I want to look at them one at a time and simply make sure that we understand them. Because what I think we will find is as we understand the summary of the law of God, we will begin to understand how we're supposed to live it out in order to declare who he is. So today you're going to have a few more points to write down than I usually give you. This, you know, I usually give you the standard three-point Baptist teaching. Today we will do a little bit more than that. Um, but from there, I want to look at why this is important and why we need to obey them. Remember that the section of chapters 5 through 11 is concerned with summarizing the overall heart of the law. The commitment that the people are to have to it and the loyalty that God is requiring more so than the specific legal details, that'll come after chapter 11. The point of God's law was to cause his people to live and act in a way that reflected his heart. You know, if I ask one of my children to go do something for me, it's kind of innate within what I ask them that it's something that means something to me. Hey, why don't you go give your sister a hug? Why don't you go help out your brother? That is showing my heart through them, in a sense. Now, what better lesson could we be learning as we move into a fixed location as a church? That obedience to God's will and God's heart will declare his glory. And as we move into a place where now we have a sign, you know, it's kind of funny. One of the main reasons I never put a fish on the back of my car, you you ever, you ever think about that? One of the main reasons I don't ever put a fish on my car is because if I do something stupid... I don't really want anyone to know that I'm associated with Jesus, right? 
Now, if I do something righteous, I like to know that, I like people to know that I'm associated with Jesus and I like to give him the glory, but when I do something stupid, I want him to be able to say, nope, don't know that guy, right? (laughs) Because I don't want to defraud his name. Well, now we have a building. Now we have a sign. Now we have a name in Salem that people will associate with Jesus Christ. We won't be that vapor that just comes and vanishes into thin air every Sunday. And so now we have to ask ourselves, are we actually living out the heart of Jesus? Not only in our homes and neighborhoods and community groups, but even as we gather on Sundays in truth. And so we want to be a beacon of light sharing God's heart with Salem and Kaiser. And so this is timely for us to understand. Israel was perched on the east side of the Jordan about to go in and find their home and put their roots down. And in a sense, we are doing the same thing. And so we have a bit of anticipation as we step into this new season, and I think this is going to be helpful for us. So let's look at how the Lord begins his statement of his law. Let's look at Deuteronomy 5, 6 there, and we'll just read it quickly again. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. A few weeks ago, we looked at the fact that L-O-R-D in all caps speaks to the fact that behind it is the name Yahweh in the Hebrew, the Tetragrammaton, the name of God. And so what we see here is this simple fact. You can write this down first. Through the law, God is reminding his people of his character. It would be as if I were saying to my children, I am Hans, your dad, right? Not, I am a dad, but I am a specific dad. I'm your dad. This is what God is trying to say. What I'm about to say to you is of my character. In the midst of the introduction on this book, I noted that one of the reasons I love Deuteronomy is because by going through it, we start to understand our God, the God of the New Testament, better. We understand his character. We understand who he is and what he desires for his people. And he says here, I am the Lord, Yahweh, your God, who did what? Brought you out of the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery. It's kind of like when moms, you know, your kids are acting up in the teenage years and you can look at them and say, do you not realize I labored over you for 12 hours or 15 hours or 30? Don't you know that I love you? You came from my body, right? It's kind of the same thing. He can say to them, don't you realize I birthed you? I saved you? Not only did the Lord save the Israelites from a horrific life of slavery and forced labor, But notice he uses the word household. He brought them out of the household of slavery. See, guys, God the Father didn't just free the Israelites from their slave masters and then shove them out into the wilderness and say, good luck. He could have done that. He could have said, well, at least I I freed you, right? At least I pulled you out of the slavery and now you're free to go do whatever. I'm not going to provide for you. I'm not going to take care of you, but at least you're free. He could have done that. But he brought them out of a household of abuse and brought them into a household of love and covenant commitment. And within this new household, he didn't just make them strangers. Yahweh God adopted them as his own children. You know, it's one thing to be standing on a street corner and yelling at hooligan kids over, hey, knock it off over there, let me lay down the law. It's a whole other thing to lay down the law in your own home when you're responsible for every piece of your children. And this is who God is. He cares for us in a way as kids. This is why in John 8, 35, Jesus could say the slave does not remain in the house forever, but the son does. The son remains forever. This is why in Galatians 4, 6 through 7, Paul could write to the church in Galatia, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into your hearts crying, Abba, Father. Abba is a very close, intimate way of proclaiming the name Father. It would be akin to Daddy in English. He says, so you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Church, it is no different for us. We were grafted in, and we were grafted in not as strangers, but as children. The more I counsel, the more I realize that the number one solution for every single one of us is to finally get to that place where we understand that we are the loved son and daughter, sons and daughters, sorry, <laughs> loved sons and daughters of the Most High King. When we get there, man, it's amazing. It is like, it is like a dish soap in an oily water. When you get the idea and the understanding that you are the loved child of God, pathology just <laughs> disappears. 
and we start to walk in truth. You see, God is spoken of as love, as life, as the Redeemer, and as the one who fights for his people. And he has always been that way. And so the commandments that he gives us are not given as an authoritarian, abusive father trying to grip us in tight control. They're commands given for our good from a father God that loves us dearly and desires the best for us. And is not waiting for us to trip up, but wants to assist us. Man, I love it as a dad when my children come to me and say, Dad, I want to do this right. How do, you, how do I do it? Can you, can you help me? And the Lord is giving this, not saying, here's the rules. Let's see if you get it. I'm going to be watching, which is how most of us interpret it. It's God saying, I want to assist you in walking in this truth, in walking in these commands. And so let's look at it with that understanding and that background Let's look at them one by one. The first one here is Deuteronomy 5.7. You shall have no other gods before me. What you can write down is this. Another way to think about this is to view it in God's character. And so what we can know is that God is faithful by covenant, so we should respond in kind. God is faithful by covenant, so we should respond in kind, which means we should respond in covenant faithfulness. From our Western Christian perspective, we really view this I think, as we look at this verse, from a heavily monotheistic perspective. What this is saying is don't even mention polytheism or else you're in sin. Right? That's what we think. We think this is monotheism versus polytheism. And in a sense, that is in there. He is the only God that is creator. And yet, what do we do with all the other places in the Bible that talk about demonic entities who are operating as lowercase g, gods? Right? The Bible says that there are many gods. It's just that there is one true God, one true creator, and there are many demonic entities operating as, lowercase g, gods. And so this is not speaking of monotheism versus polytheism necessarily. That's part of it. That is true. But the God that we look at is something asking something more of us here. The second aspect of this, besides just the fact that there is only one true God, the God that came incarnate is Jesus Christ, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But the second aspect to this is that it could be translated, you shall have no other gods as rivals to me. As rivals to me. Or you shall have no other gods before my face. In other words, in opposition to him. He is simply asking that we not make him compete with other things that take our time, talents, and treasure. Other idols in our life or our worship. Now, that sounds a bit funny because God is not preoccupied with getting our worship. I think sometimes when we talk about God as a jealous God, we think of him as this preoccupied little teenage boy in the corner going, boy, I wish they'd like me, right? No offense to the teenage boys in the room, right? But that's how I was as a teenage boy. Boy, I hope the girls will like me, right? Well, that's not how the God is that we serve. The God that we serve is not preoccupied with us. He doesn't need our worship to be whole. He is whole. But guys, this isn't simply about religious worship. The greater connotation here is that God's people were chosen by God and then they were given by God's grace his covenantal faithfulness above everyone else on the planet. My wife and I have had conversations over the years where I want her to know that I chose her out of all the 3.5 billion women on this planet. That's saying something, right? Husbands, you need to let your wives know that you chose your wife out of 3.5 billion other possibilities. So when they're beating themselves up about not being good enough, guess what they're actually saying? They're saying, you chose wrong. The reality is, is you chose dead right. And you need to let them know that. But you see, there's something right about being jealous when you choose someone out of 3.5 billion other choices. Jealousy is a good thing in that case because covenantal faithfulness requires jealousy. I don't want my wife to be any other man's. I want her to be mine. And I hope that she feels the same way about me. And if we view this verse in that perspective, we understand that God looked at every single one of us, the church, and he said, I chose you above everyone else. Please respond in kind. Show me that same covenant faithfulness Don't let other things take your time, your talents, your treasure, your worship. Don't let other things be the higher priority in your life. You see, he committed in covenant love to Israel, and now we are grafted in as the church to that chosen people. 
And in a minute, he will refer to himself as the jealous God. And we hear this in our culture and we go, oh, that's so terrible. He must be an abusive husband, unwilling to let his wife out of his abusive control. But guys, you would never say that about me if I said, I am jealous for Kelly Rasmussen. You'd think, well, that means he's probably a pretty good husband. You know, I don't want her to go on other dates with other guys. I don't want her to hold other guys' hands. Well, that's probably right, right? Yeah, that's good. And yet, for some reason, we think, oh, God's jealous? Man, man, that's a wrathful God. No, not at all. That's a loving God. You see, jealousy can either be a perverse emotional response that results from our issues of self-worth. That's the abusive husband who's jealous. It can come from grasping for commitment when we feel that it might be threatened. But jealousy can also come as a result of covenant commitment. As one commentator states it, in the context of committed love, the exclusion of rivals and the jealousy that results is a perfectly proper concern. Let me put it this way. I am jealous for my daughter, Kara. The brother who steps in and says, I'm going to take her hand, he has got big shoes to fill and he better step in when that happens. And I'm going to let him know that. And you would say that that is a good or a bad dad? A good dad. Yahweh is the same way. God is not a vindictive authoritarian wanting to control us. He is a loving God who has entered into an intimate relationship with his people. And so he calls us to that same faithfulness to him and to his people. To reflect this is part of his character to the world around us. So it's not just, hey, how many gods do you believe in? I believe in one. Great, you're doing a good job with the first commandment. That's not it. It's covenant faithfulness in response to his covenant faithfulness. Well, next we see Deuteronomy 5.8 there. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Well, the next thing that we see here is this. You can write this down. God is perfect. We should do our best to display him as he is. God is perfect. We should do our best to display him as he is. You see, Yahweh is perfect. He doesn't need our help. One of the funniest things I think about the contemporary Christian church is how often we try and doctor up the Lord so that he looks cool. Oh, well, you know, Jesus is kind of boring, so let's try and make him look better to the surrounding culture. No, guys, that's not true at all. Jesus is perfect just the way he is. Let's leave him alone, right? And Yahweh, Father God, he is perfect. Why would we want to alter perfection? For example, Yahweh spoke to the Israelites. They saw no form, only heard a voice. Idols are the exact opposite. They cannot speak or hear or see, and yet they only have form. And that form can be manipulated by us. We can make it look however we want, and that is why we like our idols. We can be God over them. Now, this is hard for us because most of us don't have little idols on our mantle, but you see, we can make our idols to be anything. It can be our children. It can be our sports. It can be our hobbies. It can even be things that look like Christianity but are just simply empty religion. But the God of the Bible is not able to be manipulated. He's a living God that is the source of all things, and idols can do nothing. God can do all things. Only mankind full of life and living in the way we were intended to live can provide the reflection of the Father's heart. Idols can't do that. And this is also an important command because when we pervert his character and manipulate him to reflect what we desire, it will ultimately lead to a perversion of our own character and our own actions. Look at the last part of verses 9 and 10 there. Verses 9 and 10, do you recognize those? Do those sound familiar to you? Those come straight out of Exodus 34, 6, which I told you I've referenced before a few times in Deuteronomy, and I will many times more. This is the God that we serve, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. What Moses does here in writing this is he uses shorthand to point back to this. This is who Yahweh is. Don't mess with him. 
The reference is contained within this commandment because God wants us to remember who he is, that he's perfect, and he's perfect because this is his character. A perfect mix of compassion and justice and holiness. There's no need to manipulate him to be like us. We need to understand and know the truth of who he is so that we can display that perfect heart of compassion, of love, of justice and truth to the world around us. We've called for this a number of times already in Deuteronomy. I want to ask you, has it caused you to press into the word more so that you can know who God is because he says he's like that? Or has it made you pull back and hold on to your view of God that isn't based in this? We have to press into the Bible and ask God who he is, not build our own belief. Because God is perfect and we should do our best to display him as he is. Well, next, let's look at verse 11. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. My dad has a lot of great qualities. He's a good man in a lot of ways. In other ways, he's very broken, came from a very busted up home and had a lot to deal with. Um, Had a little bit of a a mouth growing up when I was growing up. And uh, I remember the first time I heard the name of our Lord used as a swear word. I thought, oh, that's, that's cool. I'll, I'll use that. And so then I used it. And as many of you probably had the same experience, when I used it, it was suddenly wrong. And I got a spanking for it. And here's how sarcastic and uh, hard-headed and rebellious your pastor was at the age of seven. I tried to convince my parents that I was actually just saying the word G's in the plural. Jesus. I didn't actually get away with it, and I got a really bad spanking, um, but that was me trying to get out of the punishment that I deserved. That's not what this means. It doesn't mean don't say the Lord's name as a curse word. That should be a given, right? Um, Tyler, how do you think you'd feel if you were working on something in the garage, and you put your thumb down, and you took a hammer, and, oh, Sarah, right? Sarah, how would you feel? Not great, no, no. See, we don't, we, we don't actually do that with people we care about. And so why on earth would we do that with the Lord? That's a given. We shouldn't need this commandment for that. What this is talking about is something even more than that. What we're talking about here is worshiping God in the totality of his worth and the totality of the praise that he deserves. And so you can write it down this way. God is worthy of praise. We should worship him as he deserves. God is worthy of praise. We should worship him as he deserves. This statement about taking the Lord's name in vain could be restated this way. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, to worthlessness. You shall not lift up the name of Yahweh, your God, to worthlessness. To call on the name of Yahweh throughout Scripture is synonymous with worshiping him. If you call on his name, that means you worship him. So when we say that we are worshipers of him, we are stating that we want the world to look to us to understand who he is. Now this has broad and massive implications. I think this command is one that is the largest being sinned against in the church today. Why? Because the way we worship implicates the worth of our God, whether he's worthy or not. I'm going to talk to the men in the room for a second because men, we are terrible at singing. What is your worship like on a Sunday morning? We stand and lift up our hands. Uh, oh, the game's almost on. Uh, when's the pastor going to finish? Is that lifting up and worshiping the Lord in worth or in worthlessness? We have to understand that when we worship God in a way that doesn't show the worth that he has, we're using the Lord's name in vain and giving him a bad name. It's to represent him in a way that diminishes the truth of who he is. If we read the prophets, what we see in in that uh, is that the people of God were declaring that they were followers of him. Yet in the very first chapter of Isaiah, they even are described by God as having heavy religion, and yet the things that were important to God were not being done by those people. You guys remember this from Isaiah, don't you? Isaiah 1.11, it says, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. He's saying, you're doing all the right religious stuff, but it's wrong to me because I don't want it. Well, why? What does he want? He says, wash yourselves. 
Make yourselves clean. In other words, purify yourself. Walk in sanctification. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Today, Sunday, across the United States, there are churches filled with tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are going to check the box and do their thing and go about their business to build their kingdom and live the life of consumerism the rest of the week. That is taking the Lord's name in vain. It's lifting it up to worthlessness. God wanted them to stop proclaiming his name as their own. They were using his name in vain. They thought that by being religious, they were going to be able to manipulate him to do their will. But they were really just using God's name for their own interests, their own selfishness. Selfishness. Our worship on Sunday is corrupt and empty if it is followed by a life of selfishness and rebellion Monday through Saturday. That is using the Lord's name in vain. And in our contemporary church setting, this can happen when we confidently ascribe statements or ideas that are our own to God. We use the name of God to cover what we're doing. This could be done in, I just sinned, but God's a God of grace, so I'm going to just keep doing it. It could also be done in, hey, I want to do this thing, and I have a peace about it because Jesus gave it to me. You ever hear people use that phrase? I have a peace about it. Jesus told me. I have a peace about it. It's one of the biggest ways we use the Lord's name in vain. We have to know for sure through the word and through biblical guidance and wisdom from those around us if it is the Lord or else we might be using his name in vain. In all these ways, this command is more than just refraining from using his name as a curse word. Like I said, that should be a no-brainer. It's more about how we reflect him or not as ambassadors in the power of his name. Well, let's move on to the next one. Deuteronomy 5.12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant, your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, The Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. What this one is speaking to, guys, is the fact that God is our Redeemer, and so we should reflect his justice. God is our Redeemer, so we should reflect his justice. Most of the time when we talk about the Sabbath, we think about rest. And by rest, we as Americans mean lazy boy, TV remote, bag of chips, right? Man, I love that Sabbath commitment. It's my favorite, right? You know, I'm going to just throw on the game, sit in my lazy boy, look at me being holy, huh? right? But see, that's not what that's talking about. This is talking about something much greater. Within Isaiah, the people of God were stating they followed Yahweh, the God who had freed them from oppression, the God of redemption and the defense of the vulnerable, and yet they were oppressing and harming those who were their servants and slaves so that their own lives would be comfortable. Notice that verse 14 makes the distinction that workers should get rest as well as you. In that day, it was normal for the rich to do nothing while the poor worked tirelessly seven days a week to support the rich person's lifestyle. God's call to Israel in this context is that they be a different kind of people, a people that are concerned with justice of what might be seen as the lower castes of society. This is why it's reported that Harold Macmillan, the British Prime Minister from 57 to 63, described the Sabbath as, this is a quote, the first and greatest worker protection act in history. This didn't really ever dawn on me. This is going to sound funny, but I'm going to just go off the cuff for a second. It's the last Sunday in Straub, right? All right. When Kelly and I went on our honeymoon, we uh, decided to go on this wonderful horseback ride, right? Uh, Well, that's wonderful if you're a normal height, but for me, I suddenly am riding a horse with six legs, okay? Because no pony, unless it's a Clydesdale, is big enough to handle me, okay? So I get on this poor pony, and yes, his name was 007. I get on 007, and we start riding, and we're going along, and Kelly's, you know, she's looking like a movie star out there, you know, doing her thing, riding across the beach, and I'm going, trying to keep up with the poor horse. We get back to the barn, and, and the poor horse kind of stumbles into his stable, and then he collapses. <laughs> and guys, this is before I got, the, I got the married 50 pounds. I was only like 230, right? So I'm standing there, and I look at the poor horse, and the horse has sores on his back. 
carrying this guy on his back had caused him to collapse and have sores on his back. And that was one of the first moments where, by the grace of God, I started to think, you know what? Overworking people is a bad idea. (laughs) This poor horse, man. Well, man, we do the same thing in everything. Honestly, it's been super hard on this construction job of this, let's just work on Sunday. Let's get it done. Technically, we're going to go put up the church again this Sunday after service, right? But like having construction workers in, that's been a rule for us. No, we're not going to have anyone in on Sunday. Why? Because of this. We don't want people to work overtime just so we can have our building. And that extends out to all of our lifestyle. We don't want people working their lives away in sweatshops in the middle of Indonesia so that we can have our Nikes. All of this plays out. That's what this is talking about. It's talking about justice. The initial thrust of the command is to remember that all that God had done for his people was to free them from injustice, and yet here they were committing injustice. He sent Jesus to die for us and redeem us, to take our place so that we might no longer be held in the grasp of sin and death and hell. And our response then is to accept this merciful justice with gratitude and to spend the rest of our lives trying to reflect the same justice towards those around us. This is why Christians are to fight for the oppressed. Fighting for the oppressed is not a, oh, I feel called to that. It is, you are commanded to that. The Sabbath of the Jews, sundown, to Friday, sundown Friday to sundown Saturday, was to remind them of the victory over Egypt. And when Jesus resurrected, the church moved that Sabbath to Sunday so that on this day, the Lord's Day, we might celebrate the victory over sin that Jesus required for us and reset our minds and hearts that this week we will look for ways to help one another and help the oppressed. In Isaiah fifty-eight thirteen, Isaiah is calling the people to realize that the remembrance of the Sabbath is to be a time that spurs them on to reflecting God in their lives. Let's take a look. It says this. If you turn your back, uh, back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, guys, that, doesn't that kind of describe Americans? Right? Doing your pleasure on my holy day. I don't have to go to church today. We're just, we're going on a hike, right? Doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable. If you honor it, not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. It's not a day to seek our own pleasure at the expense of anyone else. The Lord's day is a day to give to him, to remind us what he's done, that he has freed us from oppression, that he has freed us from sin, and to reset our minds and hearts, that this week we will take that same message to those around us. God's people are to reflect the Lord's heart for raising up the oppressed and bringing down the arrogant so that righteousness and justice will reign in the earth. Amen? Amen. Well, next we see Deuteronomy 5.16. Honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you, that your days may be long and that it may go well with you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. We see this one. God is our loving father. Our families should reflect his household. God is our loving father and our families should reflect his household. Within this command, we can see three different angles in which the family unit within God's people are to reflect his heart. Remember that in that society, families did not dwell in homes where only one or maybe two generations existed. Typically, there were three or maybe even four generations that lived in extremely close proximity to another. Now, this wasn't just about children obeying parents as we think about it. My four-year-old or five-year-old or six-year-old should obey me. This is about the entire family unit respecting the authority structure put in place by God. Within this structure, there would usually be a patriarch of the family who is the highest authority, And he would be considered the elder of the family. Cities, which we would now consider towns, were made up of clans with families in them, all building up to an elder level group that would be the elder structure that would give authority to the city. And they would be made up, that group would be made up of the patriarchs of the families. And so it makes sense that part of what we display in our families is the authority structure of God. Just as God is our authority, our families need to follow some form of authority structure so that elders are loving, guiding, and instructing the younger. The elders are teaching the younger. This is why Titus instructed Paul in the letter that bears Titus' name that the older men should instruct the younger men and the older women should instruct the younger women. 
Well, guys, we know that sometimes maturity doesn't necessarily come with age. So what we look for as Christians is we look for those who are more mature in the faith. Sometimes they are older, sometimes they are younger, to help us walk and be instructed. And this structure is useful for the ultimate goal of discipleship, teaching those that follow after us the truth about who God is and the responsibility we each have to reflect him is a very important thing that we will hit on big time in chapter 6. The great Shema, which we will learn about there, can occur because the familial structure was set up in God's people. Parents were to teach their kids who God is. Brothers and sisters, if you're a parent in this church, you must realize your amazing responsibility. We have decided as the church in America to outsource, 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 there we go, outsource the teaching and discipleship of our children to youth pastors. Now, guys, Ian is a really good dude, and Cassie is an amazing woman, but they cannot take on the burden of being the outsourced leaders and disciple makers of our children. They should be assisting us as parents. Our kids will not pick it up by osmosis. We need to purposefully disciple them. So this is a key commandment in God's people. Well, then from this point, we step into the last five, all of which deal not with our relationship with God and the authority he has put in place, loving him, but these last five deal with loving one another. Take a look there at verse 17. And these are pretty cut and dried, so hopefully I won't have to explain them all that much. Verse 17, you shall not murder. Anybody got any questions on that one? Okay. You shall not commit adultery. I would have needed that help a few years ago, but anybody good now? Everybody good now? Okay, good. And you shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. And you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, or his male servant or female servant, his ox or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. To summarize these points, I want to capture it this way. And this is my last point. God is love. We reflect him to one another as we love each other. God is love. We reflect him to one another as we love each other. Our boys, they're twins, John and Jaden. When they were growing up, uh, they mistook our other and each other. And so they would say, we love our other. It was one of our favorite things. It was like the saddest day in the world when that went away. So I almost thought about writing, God is love. We reflect him to one another as we love our other. Because that's what we should be as a church. We should love our other. Right? Once we realize that our loving response to God's faithfulness, love, and redemption is to display his heart by following his law, it then makes sense to us that our love towards God should then overflow into the love that we have for one another. And guys, this isn't a program that the church can build. A lot of churches go the avenue of if we build enough programs with enough groups, then somehow people will connect and grow. But if you look at the model in the New Testament, you had a bunch of people from various groups, various ages, various places in life jammed together, and yet love came about. If you're a person who comes in here on Sunday and ducks right out, and you think, man, I'm so disconnected, nobody really reaches out to me, reach out to somebody else. If you're somebody who's already plugged in here, and you know people, and you like to go to your group that you meet with every Sunday, I want to challenge you before the end of the day today, go find somebody whose face you don't know, talk to them, get to know them. The love that we show each other on a Sunday to one another and to visitors, it speaks to who our God is. And so the last five commands, they speak to the fact that we are to treat one another in a way that shows that we worship Yahweh. And guys, this is what John says in the first letter that bears his name, 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Man, as a pastor, when I see people just messing around with each other in conflict that's just kind of dumb, I just want to go, guys, are we Christians or not? Come on. Like, do we love God or not? Because if we do, then this whole thing should stop, right? And that's kind of the rule that we should have as brothers and sisters in Christ. The problem is that we often miss the point that in all five, you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, no stealing, no false witness, no coveting, that all of these have to do with respecting one another as an image bearer of the God we serve. We can often believe that we are not harming other people, well, I didn't murder anybody, and that we are indeed keeping the commandments when, in fact, we are missing the mark of reflecting the heart of God to one another. 
In Matthew 5, Jesus does such an amazing job of taking these truths and not changing them, but helping us see the heart underneath them. Jesus is pictured as the greater Moses ascending up the mount, about to give his law. And he too is going to speak the words of God's law to those for whom he mediates. And so I want to turn there with me. We're going to go there now. Go to Matthew 5 and look with me at what Jesus says about these same laws. He takes a couple of them and blows our mind with the level and the heart change that is necessary in order to say that we are obeying them. Look at Matthew 5, 14. Give me an amen when you get there. Amen. You are the salt of the, or sorry, you are the light of the world. There we go. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the scribes and the Pharisees were tasked with helping people keep the law, making sure that the purity and obedience of Israel was so intact that God would make good on his covenant promise to bless them and give them their own land. The problem was that they were already deep in disobedience and could not find their way out no matter how hard they tried with empty religion. They didn't realize that even if they outwardly attempted to keep the law, inwardly their hearts were dark and they couldn't reflect God's heart. And so Jesus tells them something different about the law. Look at verse 21 there. He says, You have heard it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, raka, will be liable to the hell of fire. Look at what he says about adultery in verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Man, Jesus steps up the game a bit here. They would say, the scribes and Pharisees, I've never murdered anyone. But Jesus would say, murder is just the last step. The real sin is hatred towards your brother. The scribes would say, I never committed adultery. But Jesus would say, adultery is just the last step. The real sin is lustfully looking at and yearning for someone else's spouse and objectifying that person that is made in the image of God. If you're married, the sin is in the covenant unfaithfulness you've already practiced at the point of lusting. Coveting what someone else has is to disrespect their place as an image bearer of God. It is to devalue them as the Egyptian slave masters devalued the Israelites. It's to turn them into a piece of flesh. All of these come down to the main point. Are you raising up others as God desires, or are you putting them under yourself for your own purposes? All of these, Jesus points out, would destroy the image of God in the other person. And so what God is calling us to be is like Jesus, whoever does these and teaches others to do them. We are supposed to be like Jesus who perfectly fulfills the law. And this is required. I just read it in Jesus' own words. Does that make you sad? Does that make you a bit worried? It should. Because this is problematic for me. I don't know about you. It's problematic for me because I have sinned in all these ways. I have gotten angry. I have lusted. I have coveted. Probably even this morning, multiple times, in some fashion. And so what do I do? My heart is deceitful and wicked, and maybe yours is too. I'm pretty sure it is. I think I know you guys well enough. And so it might seem that we're without hope, but 
the God that calls us to obey his law, again, is not that father who says, here's the law, obey it, and I'll be waiting for you to screw up. He's the God who says, here's the law, I want you to keep it, and I will help you. He calls us to follow him, and he's not setting us up for failure. The good news of the Bible is that he's not setting us up to fail, but that he's so heartbroken by our innate state of sinful rebellion that he sent his only son, that he came as God in the flesh to be born among man, the very reason we practice this holiday that's coming up. To grow up and live the life that you and I couldn't live, perfectly fulfilling these laws, and die in our place as the atoning sacrifice to reconcile us to God. And he paid the price for the fact that we have all broken all of these commandments. Church, I have broken every one of these commandments. I don't know about you. Based upon Jesus' interpretation, I am without excuse. If you've not accepted that news today that you are without excuse, then you have to recognize it because it's true. But it doesn't end there. God died and he resurrected, showing that if we put our allegiance towards him and our faith in him and choose to make him our Lord, then he will give us new life and he will atone for us and connect us with the Father. And for those of us in this room who may not know him, today is the day to know him. Today is the day to say, Lord, I am that person who has broken every one of your commands. Please forgive me and receive me. You can do that right where you're at right now. You can come get me after service and I'll pray with you about it. Those of us in here who are already following him and have already given our allegiance, it doesn't end there. The gospel also speaks to us of the fact that Jesus resurrected, ascended, and is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. And at that time where he was enthroned, he poured out his Holy Spirit on those that are his. The Holy Spirit began in mankind at that moment, the work of regenerating us. So our hearts and minds would follow him. And what Jesus was trying to tell those that followed him with this new angle of understanding the law was that they simply need to follow him and ask for his regenerative spirit. Guys, after Jesus lays all this out, look at chapter 7, verse 7 with me. A section we do not want to take out of context because it is our only hope in context. We read all the law and we think, how can I do this, Lord? How can I actually follow you? How can I even speak to others to teach them to follow you? Because I am a hypocrite. And he uses in chapter 7, he speaks something amazing to us. And this is not asking for a new Lamborghini. This is not asking for a new house. Look at what he says in 7.7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which of you, which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, your father, not just your God, your father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him. Church, when we ask for God's assistance in keeping his law, he will give it. Dear brothers and sisters, we cannot keep the law of God without asking for his help. We cannot even begin to try. We can't even go a millisecond without it. We need it daily, moment by moment. We have been tasked as God's people with the call to obey his law so that we might purposefully reflect him to the world that needs him so badly and needs to see the truth of who he is. And Mission Fellowship, as we move into a permanent location that will have Jesus' name attached to it, our desire should be to reflect him as perfectly as we can. Not to earn our salvation, not to make us look good, but so that Jesus' name might get the glory. If you don't know Jesus today, You need his Holy Spirit. Choose to give your allegiance to him and turn your heart over to him. But if you are a follower of Christ today, your application for this week is simple. And I need you to do this for one another, for me, and for the next season of our church. This week, every day, I want to challenge you to ask for the Lord to fill you more and more with his Holy Spirit so that your heart might be regenerated And ask that as we leave Straub Middle School and find our new home near Mission Street, ask that God might use us to be a people that reflect him in all that we are and do and in all the ways that we love each other. I want you every morning to get up to ask, 
to seek and to knock and to say, Lord, I want to follow your law today. By your Holy Spirit, compel me to do so. And brothers and sisters, if you are a member of this church, you have a tool in your hands of the the directory, the member directory, that you can use to pray through for your brothers and sisters in this church. At least one time this week, make it one time through. That's 15 people a day. You can do it. I know you can. Pray for each one of us that we might have the Holy Spirit's work in our life to the level where we, knowingly, not perfectly, but as best as possible, can show the Lord by following his commands. Let's portray the Lord as he truly is. To do so, we need to know his laws, his commands, and then we need to obey. Let's practice the fullness of the law this morning. And let's begin, as our time of worship begins, as we love God and love one another in the midst, if we can learn to love one another here today, even in this small time of communion and singing, then that love can extend out beyond the walls of this church. Brothers and sisters, it's been an exciting seven years as a portable church. But let's look forward with anticipation to all that the Lord will use us for as we now have a new home base from which we can be sent even further into Salem and Kaiser to reflect his love and speak his gospel. And let's take the Great Commission to baptize in his name and to teach all people to obey his commands Let's take that seriously as we step into this new time. Amen? Amen. 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 Worship team, why don't you come on up? As we did last week, just to finish off here and begin our time of worship, I want to read through the Ten Commandments to concrete them in our minds and hearts, not because they earn salvation, but because they are the response to salvation from a loving God who redeemed us by his grace, not of our works, And they help us to portray who he is to the world that needs to know him. Church, what is the law of God as stated in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in the heaven above or in the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and your mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not covet. I hope in these last two weeks as we've gone through these that these would, these would stop being dusty old commandments that were on a rock somewhere back in the Middle East and they would start to be the laws that are written on our hearts because the Holy Spirit works in our lives and has regenerated us to show who Jesus is.